The Veterans Affairs Department has long had a nationwide network of facilities so it could be close to those it serves, but now it's taking that a step further with a fleet of mobile medical units on wheels. VA hopes to reach homeless or other veterans who just can't get to a medical center. Here with the details, VA's National Program Manager for Homeless Patient-Aligned Care Teams, Jillian Weber. Dr. Weber, good to have you with us. Good morning. Well, tell us what's going on here. VA is putting out itself on wheels to local communities? That's correct. VA is launching 25 mobile medical units to VA medical centers across the system to provide health care, mental health, women's health, and housing resources to veterans experiencing homelessness and those at risk of homelessness. Well, I remember as a kid, they had bookmobiles, which were little libraries on wheels. Is this going to bring medical care to the homeless, or is it going to bring the homeless back to a medical care facility and then drop them off again? These mobile units will bring medical care directly to veterans in the community setting. They will have access to vaccinations, health assessments, health education, medications, and housing resources directly in the community setting. This sounds like a pretty big vehicle. It's not like a microbus with a couple people in it. It sounds like something they can step up into, and it's like a little environment on wheels? That's correct. There's actually two different sizes that are being deployed. One's a larger 27-foot vehicle that has two exam spaces and also has a bathroom on board. The second vehicle is a little bit smaller at 21 foot, and it has one space when you step in. But both of them have steps up into it and swinging hinge doors for easy access with railings for safety. Let me ask you this. Veterans Affairs generally knows where homeless veterans are. I mean, there are population surveys done. There, are, I think people get out on foot a couple times a year and search out where the homeless veterans are living. What is the logistics of going to those areas and making sure that the people that show up to the van are, in fact, Veterans Affairs Department-worthy individuals? We have been very intentional and thoughtful about the outreach process using these vehicles. So this includes coordinating strongly with our community partners, along with all of our VA homeless program staff and primary care medical staff in terms of reaching those individuals that are high need. So there has been extreme thought and process into this planning stages. Well, yeah, I mean, how do you ID the people when you get there, for example? So VA also coordinates with eligibility. The teams that go on the mobile unit will coordinate with their eligibility office to ensure they're eligible for services. I mean, if you are a veteran, you have usually documentary evidence of that fact, you know, discharge papers or a card, whatever it might be. And do the homeless generally have that? And if they don't, then what happens? So veterans experiencing homelessness or those at risk sometimes have their paperwork and sometimes they don't, right? Just by the nature of their living situation, they may not be carrying appropriate paperwork around with them. Therefore, the homeless program staff, the primary care medical team staff really work with the veteran and they work with the community providers and the VA system as a whole to ensure these individuals are eligible and really be able to provide that care on site at that point in time as well. And are the homeless only in the urban areas, as we commonly see with the tent cities and so forth popping up? Or what about the rural, either homeless or rural that are living in conditions such that it's difficult for them to get to a VA or even a community care provider? That's correct. There are homeless individuals in the 
urban areas, and that's more what you're speaking to what we see, but they are often found in the rural areas as well. That's why we have to be very intentional and strategic about working with our community partners and making sure there's broad awareness about the scheduling of the vehicle and sticking to that schedule when it is set as well. We are speaking with Jillian Weber. She's National Program Manager for Homeless Patient-Aligned Care Teams at the Veterans Health Administration. And who staffs these vans, and how does that all come about to make sure you have the people necessary to deal with what they might encounter when they get to a location? The core staff on the vehicles will be the primary care team that is dedicated to providing service for homeless veterans, or the HPAC team that you mentioned. So this will include a medical provider that could be a, a medical doctor, an advanced practice nurse practitioner, or a physician's assistant. It also includes nursing services, social work services, and administrative support. In addition, there could be other disciplines present in terms of pharmacy services, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and then of course, key collaboration with our homeless program staff to provide that wraparound housing support. What about the security aspects? Because some of the homeless zones are frankly dangerous spots. One of the key pieces of this is to ensure safety of veterans and of staff. So that includes ensuring there's no one on the vehicle individually. We're always working teams or partners to ensure there's safety. And staff have also been trained in safety mechanisms to ensure that we all are kept safe. So really want to highlight that. I think that's a key important piece that you mentioned because we want staff and veterans alike to all be safe. Because sometimes, you know, people maybe have a psychological condition that renders the individual that you're serving someone you got to be careful around. Fair to say? Yes, that's correct. And staff are trained in resources to support those individuals with mental health issues, substance abuse issues, things along those lines. And what are some of the time of day challenges? Because, say, a homeless person could be in a shelter, you know, overnight, but then they're out during the day, and how do you make sure you get there at the location where you can really find them? The key piece in terms of accessing individuals and they, those veterans being able to access the mobile units is really the key collaboration with our community partners who operate at the emergency shelters or transitional housing programs to provide the awareness to us if there's a new veteran on site that needs access to services, because exactly that, the vehicles may not be functioning seven days a week, 24 hours a day and available in the community setting. Right. We really have to rely on that key collaboration with our partners. Yeah, you come back to that point a lot. The community care partners are not necessarily suburban, fancy medical clinics, but they could be people serving homeless populations right at the ground level, sounds like. That's correct, yes. In the shelter systems or the transitional housing programs that are working to provide those resources, so food, shelter, clothing, all of those pieces that we really work collaboratively with to ensure the best for the veterans. And what are some of the measures of success of this program? Just number of people served, because you said vaccinations and so forth. But, I mean, what if you identify someone that really needs hospitalization or needs more long-term care than they can get from the van? So the mobile vehicles act as like an adjunct resource for those medical services. And since they're staffed by the primary care medical team and other homeless service resources, they can easily make those referrals back to the VA Medical Center if they need to go to the emergency department, need to be admitted for various reasons. So that wraparound key piece is available since that staff from VA is staffing the vehicles. And I guess if they were brought to a medical center for more extensive care or longer term care, would it 
be fair to say that services that could help them get out of the homeless situation might be more readily available and that it could leave the VHA center to something other than the streets. Ideally, if a veteran is admitted to the hospital, they will be provided those services as inpatient or in the emergency department or whatever aspect they're in the actual hospital system to be able to facilitate you know, housing and care outside of that stay. However, the vehicles provide that conduit, right, to really help provide that key wraparound piece in terms of so they don't get lost in the system. There is no gap in care or gap in services. And you've got 27 of these. Have you started with it or when do they start hitting the streets, so to speak? We have 25 actually that will be deployed over the next six months. And the first one landed in Orlando on August 3rd. Okay, so they're just out there. And is there a plan to say, well, if this works, you probably need more than 25 to cover the whole country? Yes. So right now, of course, we are focusing on the current launch of these 25 mobile medical units. However, there is lots of interest, of course, in future mobile units. And the next step of this phase is to really evaluate this program and the effectiveness of health outcomes. Then, you know, really taking those next steps forward into a future interest in planning for more vehicles. And the vehicles that you have now, the 25, are they, so to speak, tethered to a particular medical center, for example, the Orlando Center or Albany or whatever it might be? That's where they return at the end of the workday? That's correct. They are warded to 25 VA medical centers across the VA system. And how did you pick the 25, by the way? So the opportunity for a mobile medical unit was available to the 55 homeless primary care sites that operate out of the VA medical centers. Of those 55, 25 submitted complete applications and were awarded the mobile medical units. So the plan is you hope that all 55 will have these at some point? At some point, that would be an ultimate goal in the future, yes. (laughs) All right. Dr. Julian Weber is National Program Manager for Homeless Patient-Aligned Care Teams at the Veterans Health Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. 
And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again, because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. 
You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, and its membership, and where we were four or five years ago, and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today. It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how 
to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.